Ladies and gentlemen, we are continuing in on gospel stories today. This is a series wherein we are working through and discussing ways in which the gospel has affected our lives. Uh, and it's, it's both touches on, and especially, duh, Jesus and his story, but also the way in which his stories have hit us, right? And so last week, just a quick overview, we had a couple of real big things that we should actually remember. And one of these is the fact that sometimes we make our gospel much too small right? Sometimes we distill it down to one individual time period and forget the fact that it is actually very, very big, right? Uh, another, obviously, the gospel is far bigger than you could possibly imagine, and the fact that the gospel affects everything. Every faucet of your life is affected by Jesus and what he did, and every faucet of creation as well. Everything is affected by him. Those were last week's takeaways, and we're going to kick through into this week, right? Now, before we get started, there's this concept that pops up a bunch of times in Hebrew poetry and in actually books like the book of Acts as well, that is a way for you to give emphasis to a story. And this is called a chiasm, right? And what that is taken off the Greek letter for chi, which is like an X. And the concept is it's a thing that starts at one point, moves to a different point, moves into a midpoint, and the midpoint's the most important part, then it works its way back out and goes to the second point that was above and the final point out again. Like, it's like a big old arrow, right? Chiasm. I say that because that's what I'm going to try and do while preaching today, but that means I'm actually telling about three interlocking stories, and my apologies if I get myself discombobulated. We'll see how this goes, though, right? We're going to start with the not important stuff because you move into the important thing in the middle, and the important thing's going to be Jesus. That's where we're going to land. Duh, he's generally the most important thing we can talk about. We're going to start with my story. We're going to start in September of 2002. This is me following graduating high school. I graduated in 02. Uh, I was working at a pizza hut, right? I made pizzas really well. I'm just going to be honest there. I'm humble and all, but I was a really good person at making pizzas. I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time doing stuff there. and I spent a lot of time getting to know the people who were there. Uh, and I did not spend as much time, you know, talking to Jesus as I had before in my life. At this point, this is two years past what I had talked about last week, whenever I'd become a follower of Jesus, whenever I was 16. So this is whenever I'm 18. Uh, I'm a man now. Ha! <laughs> Anywho, that's what I thought. I was a person who was in control of my own destiny. I could take care and do anything I want. And I was realizing at this point that, man, I felt weighed down by the gospel and by Jesus. I felt like it was keeping me from doing things I wanted to do in my life, Right? There were so many things I could do as I'm heading off to college that would be fun and awesome and I would enjoy them, but for some reason Jesus said it wasn't good to do those things, you know, whatever. Don't be stupid, basically. But I wanted to be stupid. And I was sitting in church one day, and there was a sermon going on, and there were people doing worship. This is actually before the sermon. There was people doing worship. There was a team up leading worship at the front of this church that I went to at the time. And there was a... Uh, whole big to-do about what was going on that day, but I was sitting in the back of the church, in the back right-hand side, by myself. I was away from everyone else because, you know, I'm super good at community. Uh, and I was hiding, and I was sitting down there, and I was just thinking to myself, you know what? This is dumb. I don't want to waste my time whenever I could be doing stuff I enjoy. I think I'm done with this. I'm done being a Christian. It's not worth it. It's not fun. I think I'm ready to leave. Is where I sat at that point. Fast forward about, rewind, rewind about, about, what, three, four months? Rewind about four months. Fun story, I was actually one of the people who was leading the youth group 
at the time. I was a youth leader in the youth group uh, because I had become a follower of Jesus and I had gotten to know more of who he was. And I had started to ask some really good questions and I had started to show some possibilities of being a person who has leadership capabilities, right? And so one point, I'm sitting down on this leadership team with a guy named Shane Bonet. If you were here last week, Shane Bonet is one of the two guys who actually sat down and explained to me what it means to be a man who follows Jesus. He's also the guy who put me on my butt whenever I was pretending like I knew how to do martial arts. That whole story, right? If you want to hear that one, feel free to tune into our website and really listen to last week's sermon. It's on there, and there's a transcript available, which is fun. I don't know why. Who's interested? Kicking that out there. It was a button I could press in my sermon software, and it made one. So why not? Anywho. Shane was meeting with the youth group, and he was meeting with all of the youth leaders, and he asked us a really simple question. This is story two, by the way, in our catechism, so we're into point two now, right? So he asked us this question. In the whole Bible, if you are anybody, who do you think most resembles you? That's the question he asked. And I'm like, I don't know many Bible people. I wasn't into the Bible that much yet, so I'm like, I don't know. David? He's a person whose name I've heard. I'm like David. And he's like, no, you're not. I was like, touche, sir. I'm assuming you know better than I, right? And so everyone else goes through their list of who they think they are. And then it gets back to me, and I'm like, hold on a second, hold on a second. Who do you think I am? Which is funny. I didn't realize that was a question Jesus asked somebody at one point. But I asked it to him, right? And he looked at me, and he said, you are Nicodemus. Who else familiar with Nicodemus, right? Yeah, everyone? Yeah. Super common name. I'm not allowed to name any of my kids it. But I like him. What? Thank you. <laughs> what? Nikki. It's a girl's name. It works out. No? All right. Anywho. I, huh? Nicodemus. Thank you. Nicodemus. All right. If you don't know, Nicodemus shows up in the book of John, and he shows up for the first time in chapter 3, and this is his story. This is part 3, by the way. This is the important part, right? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him and said, are you the teacher of Israel and that you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light. Let his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That is Nicodemus's first introduction to the story, this giant conversation he has with Jesus. And Nicodemus is fun because he's a teacher of the law. He's a Pharisee. And he actually, further on, we see he's probably a member of the Sanhedrin or the main teachers of the, the chair of, the, of Israel at the time. And he is a guy who sees Jesus and what he's doing. And he sees Jesus and recognizes his authority. And he sees that there's something about him that he has to be from God because of the miraculous things he's done in his life. The fact that Jesus can do things like heal people, it's a pretty big deal. That he can cast out demons, that he can raise people from the dead, that he can do miraculous things. He sees this, and he says, this is obviously not of this world. This is of God, right? It's obvious. And he shows up and says, teacher, we know that you are from God because you can do these marvelous and wonderful things, right? We know it. And he just like shows up in the middle of the night, which how many of you go to talk about things that you're not ashamed to say in the middle of the night, right? When I show up, someone just like show up at their door in the nighttime, be like, hey, just uh, I like the Dodgers. <laughs> Whatever, right? That's a thing, right? I know sports. <laughs> okay. So you don't just walk up and say things, like, especially in the book of John, uh, light and darkness are huge themes in this book, and so whenever things are in the light, they're good, and things that happen in the darkness, usually things people are ashamed of. So the fact that Nicodemus shows up in the dark shows that he's probably not quite all together yet in what he understands and believes, right? So he says, we know that you are of God. End of statement. And Jesus replies back with this, let me uh, rewind. No one can do the signs unless God is with him. What are we doing? There we go. Stop. All right. And Jesus answers him. So he says this random things, and Jesus gives an answer to his statement about how he's from God. And this is Jesus' answer to, yes, I'm from God. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Sounds super related to what Nicodemus just said, right? Totally related. Wait, no, it's not. If someone shows up and says, I'm saying that you have authority and I understand it, and that person says, by the way, be born a second time. What? Which is Nicodemus' response. What? How can a man be born again? It doesn't make sense. Can he go a second time into his mother's warm and womb and be born again? Like, birth is something that happens once. You got one shot at it, and then you're born, right? And Jesus says, no, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of water, which is of your mother, of flesh, or born of spirit, and born of spirit, born from above. You can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So just consider this conversation that's occurring, right? So Nicodemus is having this conversation with Jesus. Jesus just drops some truth bombs on him, and Nicodemus basically says, what? I don't understand. What does this mean? I don't get it. 
and Nicodemus is probably flustered. And it's interesting because we don't actually hear about Nicodemus leaving. Directly following this story of this conversation with Jesus, it goes basically, oh, you must be in the light. And then all of a sudden, it's just new story time, just straight over. We don't actually hear about what happened to Nicodemus. And if Nicodemus had been like, I understand completely, I'm following forever, that's probably something John would have tossed in there, right? What probably happened was following that conversation, he was flustered, he didn't understand, he walked away perplexed. He was angry, right? He didn't get it, and he had lots of questions. Later, sorry, I got to do my forward clicking again. Take a second. I'm in the wrong uh, thing up here. Maybe able to just press a button and go to the right place. We're almost there. We're almost there. Oh, there it goes. Further on in the book. Further on in the book of John, about four chapters later, Jesus is doing and saying stuff that is awesome, and he's making things happen again, and he's performing miracles in front of crowds, and he's saying hard things in front of crowds, difficult things that are hard to hear and understand and believe. Uh, and the crowds are getting mad at Jesus, and especially the teachers of the law are getting super mad at Jesus, right? The officers then came with the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to Jesus, who said to them, uh, oh no, sorry, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to the officers who were supposed to arrest Jesus at the time, uh, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like him. This guy says stuff we can't understand or believe. There's something different about him, right? The Pharisees answered, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this is a crowd that does not know the law, and it's a curse, right? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Oh, I skipped a part. Where's it at here? Oh, yeah, there it is. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then they say, Nicodemus, you from Galilee too, search see that there's no prophets from Galilee, right? So the teachers of the law are mad. They're trying to arrest Jesus. They're wanting to actually get him uh, executed so that he would stop riling up the crowds. And then this guy who was perplexed and walked away without actually believing in who Jesus was or understanding what he was saying defends him and defends Jesus, and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Should we judge him without actually first putting him on trial? That's not appropriate. Don't do that, right? So Nicodemus went from a guy who was just straight up, who are you, what's happening, to, hey guys, let's not be too hasty or mad about this. Like, let's not do things that are rash. To, further on, the end of the book, following Jesus' death and burial, death and death and uh, his death on the cross, right? He has been executed for insurrection against Rome. He has been put on trial. He has been killed. And then this man named Joseph of Arimathea. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked that Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So this man came up to Pilate, the Roman authority at the time, and asked for something that's relatively unheard of. He asked for the body of a condemned criminal, Jesus that he could treat it respectfully, which is not what crucifixion usually did. Usually if you're crucified, you're left there dead and displayed until you literally rot off of the cross. As an example, to not do the things that person did, right? It went heavily against Jewish culture for this to occur. Uh, desecration of bodies was not a thing that was done by their culture. So Joseph came and asked for Jesus' body secretly. He took his body away. Nicodemus also, who came to Jesus by night earlier, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds of weight. Myrrh and aloe were super expensive. 
super expensive. Roughly worth their weight in gold, I'm assuming. Right around there. I don't know exchange rates very well on myrrh and gold. But it was very expensive stuff. And he actually came and he paid respect to Jesus and his body as well, right? And he did so in the face of the Jewish authorities who would have wanted him to be left there as an example. He defied the authorities because he respected Jesus that much. That's Nicodemus' story. That's all we know about it. He went from someone who was there and didn't believe and questioned, but he was in the background of Jesus' life the whole time. And then he defended him a little bit whenever he saw him being unjustly treated. And then he was one of the few people who treated him with respect at the end, right? So further along, back to May 2002 again, back whenever I was talking in that youth group and speaking to that gentleman, and he said, you're Nicodemus. I'm like, what do you mean by that? And he said this, Nicodemus questioned and asked, what do you mean? He was willing to stand in Jesus' face and say, what do you mean by that? That doesn't make sense. And you don't see very many people actually doing that to Jesus. Like his disciples will do it secretly, but he's one of the ones who's just like, what? I don't get it. And he didn't get it. And then he spent some time, and he watched, and he observed, and he learned some more. And he began to treat that person with a little bit more respect. And then at the end, he seemed to actually be willing to identify himself so much with this person, he's willing to put his life on the line to show respect to his dead body, right? That's what he said, I like. I question everything. And those of you who know me, imagine my contentiousness whenever I'm a high schooler, let alone my contentiousness now, right? This is me whenever I've kind of mellowed out a little bit. I questioned everything. And he's like, and you would question everything, and you don't get it. And you would question and question and question and question until you get it. And at that point, you're willing to defend it. And you're willing to put down everything to defend it, right? That's what he said I was like. Interesting. I didn't see myself like that. I didn't know why I was like that. I didn't get who I was or what I was doing, right? Let's move back a little bit further. Oh, I'm sorry. This is just one thing we're going to kick out real quick. This is one of our main points that we're going to actually remember uh, because this is what we're going to be talking about in just a second. But this is this, right? The gospel, the good news, the work Jesus does does not end at your salvation. The gospel does not end with salvation. The good news is not just about salvation. The good news is about so much more. All right, you did that one. I'm confused. Yes, sir. We got married and we're done. No other point of that story. Yeah.
that's completely the point, right? So in Nicodemus' story, he actually says this at one point. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I tell you, truly, you cannot be, uh, I said to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit for one of the first times in the gospel. But he's stepping into something that's very, very important. Because check this out. John 15 and John, through John 16, Jesus says, this is not moving forward. Move forward for me. There it says, but the helper, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of their synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none, of, and none of you are asking, where are you going? But because you have said these things to you, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your, to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I'm just going to pause there for a second. See, Jesus actually says this. I'm going someplace, and you're sorrowful that I'm going. Just before this, Jesus had told the disciples for the first time he's going to die. He will be crucified. <coughs> Excuse me. And they're like, no, this can't happen. How can it be? Don't. We like you. Stick around. Right? And Jesus literally says, it is good for you if I go, because if I go, I will send the helper to you. I'll send someone who will help you, which is the Holy Spirit, which is another part of the gospel. This is a faucet of God's good news to us. We are not alone in our stories. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. He has sealed us. He covers us and he fills us that we might know who God is, that we might bear witness in our own lives to who he is, and that we might bear witness to him to the world outside, right? We have the Holy Spirit. Cut down to a different part of my story. We're rewinding a little bit further, a little bit further. This is December of 2001. In December of 2001, I went to Niagara Falls. December 27th of 2001. Uh, you guys, the weather's kind of crappy outside, right? A little bit? Smidge, Creed's all wearing shorts. He's like, no, it's fine. The weather's a little rough. But I want to show you a quick picture of what the weather was like on December 27th, 2001 in Buffalo, New York. This is a photo from that day, where we were at. This is where we drove through to get there. It was hilarious getting up to Niagara Falls on that day because in order to do so, we could not stop the van because lining the highway on both sides were cars who had stopped during the blizzard and could not get started or moving again. So we could not stop or else we would never start again. And we're in a van, one of those fun, horrible, tippy church vans. It's a bunch of youth kids going up to Niagara Falls, right? And I remember distinctly a couple things about this. This conference is one of the things that actually changed my life not so much because of the stuff that was said or done during the conference in a good way, but because of some stuff that I learned about Jesus and how he 
uh, helps us as followers of him as we go along, right? But one, uh, I remember being in Niagara Falls, wandering up and down the riverbank, wearing basically the clothes Creed's wearing now, and just happy. I'm never happy in cold weather, but for some reason, I was wandering outside in a short sleeve shirt and a pair of, oh, I got nothing better to say than like camouflage white pants, because I used to wear those, and just wandering up and down the banks of the river and just happy and warm for some reason, right? But while I'm there as well, this conference, if you want to know how much it affected me, who here knows how good I am at uh, just saving stuff and keeping it and uh, holding on to things well, right? Uh, I'm very organized, right? No? I literally walked downstairs today and pulled up both my folder of packet information and the old leadership manual from this conference. I still know where they're at. It affected me that heavily that I actually remember where stuff is from it. But not because the conference was super awesome. The conference was kind of meh, actually. But for one event that happened during it, we were at this conference, and I was not yet fully understanding what it means to be an actual follower of Jesus. I wasn't a disciple, really. I was, but I didn't understand what it meant. I didn't make a conscious decision to be a disciple of Jesus yet. I was a follower of his, but I wasn't actually saying, no, I want to be like you, right? So I'm there, and we're in the middle of this conference room. And do you guys, you know how... Uh, I made a joke about emotional manipulation whenever, what's his name, ran up here? Uh, Theo, yeah? Emotional manipulation is a thing that sometimes happens in large-scale events. We see it all the time, right? So imagine this. You're in a room of about 2,000 high school-age kids. And they give everyone, like, this giant party-type atmosphere where there's all these light shows and sounds going off and giant rock band-type concerts. And everyone's dancing around in the aisles and whatnot because kids are weird. Right? And we're all just getting super happy and excited and jubilant and we're bouncing and jumping and dancing. And then they stop. The counter people stop and they say, you know what? No, we're going to actually stop for a minute. We're just going to pause. And we're going to sit in silence for a moment. Because we believe that God is doing something big here tonight. And we're just going to wait and see what he does. So that's actually emotional manipulation. Getting someone very, very, very riled up and then stopping it, especially whenever you're people who don't quite understand uh, how your bodies work or how your emotions work, right? To do that is to purposefully mani manipulate people emotionally. And it happened. They got 2,000 kids in a place, got them all riled up, and then turned down the lights and turned everything off and just laid on the stage. And all the kids are in the aisles like, uh... What are we supposed to be doing right now? Right? And they said things like, something amazing from God is going to happen right now, and it's going to come from you. We're waiting to see what it is. That's emotional manipulation, because everyone's sitting and waiting and saying, okay, something's supposed to happen. Am I supposed to do something? Are you supposed to do something? There might be something I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm supposed to say something. I'll say something, right? Super from Jesus, that. No, it's not. But here's where the actual story steps in and how I started to hear what it means to have the Spirit and understand the Holy Spirit a little better, right? So when those lights dropped for the first time, I actually got this extremely, extremely bad feeling in the pit of my stomach that something ungodly is going to happen, that there's something I need to watch out for because something not good is going to happen. And I'm like, this is weird. I've never felt anything like this before, never understood or felt like this deep conviction that something weird or bad is going to happen, but it's 
scary. I don't know why. I feel anxious and nervous. I look over at my best friend, who a little bit later, you'll hear some of my story about Youngstown. This will be another day. Not today. Sorry, we're almost done with stories. In Youngstown, he was my best friend. We spent a bunch of time together. But I look over at him, and he is just like white as a ghost. Like, he's got the same feeling, and he doesn't know why. Then we look down at Shane, same youth guy who I was talking to a little bit later in May. And look at him, he's like, well, time to go. And he stands us all up and turns around and walks us out. And as we're walking up the aisle to walk out, the entire room just like erupts. And there's people just like yelling and screaming and saying things. And there's one person on the other side who's basically acting like Jesus. Come to me, I'll give you rest. And they're like putting hands on people. There's one dude over on the other side who's just yelling other stuff. There's someone over here who's yelling about how whenever Joshua walked around the city of Jerusalem, all of the walls fell. And we're going to be like that. And just real quick story, if you all didn't pick up on that. He said, when Joshua walked around the walls of Jerusalem, Joshua didn't walk around the walls of Jerusalem. The walls of Jericho fell whenever Joshua walked around them, right? I'm assuming if the Holy Spirit was actually prompting that kid to talk, he probably would have known what city Joshua walked around. He knew the story. See, what's happening is that people got riled up emotionally and were basically spontaneously faking having experiences of the Holy Spirit. And we were walking out whenever this began to occur. And we got back to our hotel rooms. We met in the little conference area, and we sat down and we talked about what just happened. And then we talked about the fact that both Dave and myself had this extremely bad feeling something bad was supposed to happen and it was time for us to leave. And we don't know what that's about. He actually explained, well, that's discernment. It's actually one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he provides to believers that you can know sometimes you'll be able to understand whether or not something is of God or not of God because the Holy Spirit will teach you and tell you and proclaim these things to you. And I got to learn that this is actually something that God does sometimes, that he does actually care for us and he continues caring for us and he provides us with things that we would not normally have of ourselves so that we can have a good relationship with him. And we learned what discernment was that day. And we learn that we have the Holy Spirit as his followers, that the Holy Spirit loves us, guides us, directs us, empowers us, and enables us to be like Christ. And that day is the day that I remember making a decision to actually say, you know what? I do believe in Jesus. I'm willing to follow him. I'm willing to give my life to him. I surrender. Everything is yours. That's whenever my actual discipleship as a follower of Christ kicked in, right? Now, as Jesus said, it's good for us if the Spirit comes. And there's this. Part of the gospel is this. If you're a follower of Christ, God will empower you, enable you, and enact change in your life. Change that enables you to be more like him. You might as well just give in. He's going to do it. It's what he does. Now, it's not to say that you will always be perfect at this or great at it. Fast forward again. I'm sorry, December of 2000, I already talked about that next. Fast forward all the way to the first story I was talking about, September of 2002. Remember whenever I was sitting in that church? This is like a year after this event occurred. And I'm sitting here like, you know what? I'm ready to give up. This is dumb. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk to Jesus about this. I'm done. There's no such thing as Jesus. Fine, whatever. God, I'm going away. I don't care about it. I'm done. 
That's where I was sitting at that church in that moment. I was in the back, and I was ready now to stand up and walk out and walk away. And a little inkling kicked into my brain. And I'm like, you know what, just in case, just in case, I'm going to verify. Hey, God, I'm about to walk away forever. I'm about to step out of this room and walk away, and if I do, you're never going to hear from me again. I'm done. So if you're actually there, do something. All right, bye. Right? That was my just-in-case prayer. <laughs> By the way, don't, don't pray like that. <laughs> like ever. It's not an appropriate way to actually talk to God. Uh, and, and it doesn't usually work out very good in people's favor, right? It's not usually the best thing in the world. Remember how those people before had faked movements of the Holy Spirit and they had started saying things that were weird and like false, not right? Right, that's false prophecy, honestly. It happens. But I'm sitting in the back of this church. There's about 250 people in it. I'm in the back row getting ready to walk out. I literally finished that prayer. I said, you better do something big or I'm leaving. And as I was praying that, the worship band that was up front stopped playing. Just stopped. Completely. Which is weird. They never stopped mid-song. Never seen it happen before. Never seen it happen since. And a dude walked up on stage named Doug. Doug is a cool guy. He's super tall, super thin, glasses. Like, looks like what you would assume a nerd looks like, just in general. Like, picture a nerd who's about 40, and you have pictured Doug. Okay? And he walks up on stage, and he walked up, and he stopped the song. I looked up to why the song stopped, and he was standing on stage. And he apologized. I'm very, very sorry. I know we don't do this. I'm horribly sorry. I know this is not something that we normally do in here, and it's weird. But um, I was praying during worship, and I heard something from the Lord that I have to say. And it was really important for me to say it, so I got up here to say it. Uh, by the way, Doug ended up becoming the pastor of that church. He wasn't at the time. He was just a random dude. But he ended up becoming the head pastor a little bit later. You see, while I was praying, if you don't do something right now, I'm going to walk away. While I was praying that, Doug was already walking up on stage. And as I went to stand up, Doug said, Jesus is saying there's someone here who's thinking about walking away from him forever, and he wants you to know not to do it. He's got plans for you. Don't leave. You're scared. You don't know what your life is like. You don't know what it's going to look like to be a follower of his. You've waded knee-deep into an ocean, and you see a wave coming, and you're freaking out. Don't be scared. He has you. Now, when I heard that, my response was, okay, guess I'm not supposed to leave. This is not a normal occurrence for Guys, I know it sounds like one of those things that could just be made up. Sure, if you stand up enough times, I'm like, someone in here is having trouble with Jesus or your marriage or something. Like Jonathan Edwardsy, right? Or Sylvia Brownie, whoever you want to go with. Brownie. I like brownies. Anywho. <laughs> you can just sort of like read a room and say something. He has never done this before. No one at the church has done so before or since. It was not something that happened on a weekly basis. It was not something that was a regular occurrence. One time literally as I'm praying the prayer, happened. See, the Holy Spirit is given not just for yourself, but the Holy Spirit is given for those around you to edify and build up the church and help it grow. Uh, the Holy Spirit, he empowers you that you might empower other people.
He gifts you that you might gift other people. And the Holy Spirit on that day gifted Doug that Doug might gift me. That I wouldn't walk away. This is part of the gospel, guys. The good news is that God actually cares about us enough to sometimes directly influence the world. Not all the time. I have prayed for many a thing beyond that, and I have not received answers. I have asked for signs before, and basically the response that I felt is the same thing that Jesus said to people. A sinful and stupid nation asks for a sign. None will be given to them, right? Yeah, which, that's me. But for some reason, he chose to bless me in this way. And that's part of the gospel, that God in his love for us cares for us and will allow us to be his. He didn't have to answer. He didn't have to reach out. I don't, in the grand scheme of things, matter much in this world, right? He matters a ton. I don't matter that much. What he's doing matters a lot. What I'm doing doesn't matter very much. But for some reason, he still chose to care for me. And that's the good news. The God of the universe cares about you. He cares about your life. He cares about where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. He cares about everything that matters to you. And he even cares about things that don't matter to you in your life. It says that whenever you were born, before you were born, he knew every single strand of hair on your head. There is nothing about you that he doesn't know completely or understand perfectly. And he loves you. Completely. Not only does he love you, but he recognizes your weaknesses, recognizes your faults, and he is willing to overcome them and compensate them by his power, by his spirit. That's the good news. God gave himself for you that you might have life in him. And that life is not life that's condemned to be the life that you had before you knew him forever and ever. But instead, he will empower you and enable you to have life abundantly. I can't say perfect, happy life all the time, guys. That was like, what, goodness, 2002 is what, 16 years ago? Right? I'm old. That means, oh my goodness, I'm just realizing this. That means that 16 years ago, that means 18 years ago, whenever I became a Christian, I have now spent more than half my life as a Christian, and now I feel old. Um, wow. But God enables you to become more and more like him. If you want to be, you have one thing you have to do, which is surrender yourself over to him. You see, in 2001, I surrendered. Not perfectly. But I said, fine, my life is yours. Do what you will with me. In 2002, I ignored that. I wasn't willing to surrender for a while. And then he still loved me. And I was willing to surrender again. And I'd love to say that from that point on, my story was perfect and everything was great and there's nothing else that went wrong. But I'd be lying. Next time you guys hear me preach, you'll get to hear about about four months later whenever I ignored God again. But here's my takeaway. 
The gospel does not end with your salvation. The good news does not end with the time you became a follower of Jesus. And the gospel is this. Christ in his Holy Spirit will now enable you and empower you to be more and more like him. And he'll do it through the way in which the Spirit moves through you, and he'll do it through the way in which the Spirit moves through the church. He's going to do it. Give in. Does that make sense? All right, let's take a moment. We're going to pray together. We're going to spend some time partaking in communion together. Then we're going to worship the Lord again together, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Father, we praise you for being a God who enables us to be like you. We thank you for the fact that you sent your spirit to us, that we might have life in you and that we may be empowered in you. Lord, we praise you for the fact that you sent him. Thank you. Father, may we listen to your spirit in our lives. May we accept whenever you, Lord, uh, give us discernment. May we accept whenever you allow us to be convicted of our sin. May we accept whenever you teach us to be more and more like you. And Lord God, may we give up. May we surrender. Lord, I'm excited to see the story that you're saying through everyone here. I'm excited to see the story that you are building in each of our lives. Thank you for the story that you've given us in the Gospels that we may know you and understand who you are better. And Lord God, thank you for your death and resurrection. May we glorify you today. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.